Welcome to episode 14 of the Spiritual Psychology Reconnect. Today we are featuring Vanessa Klugman. I'm so thrilled to be bringing you this amazing human being who is going to share more about the Four Noble Truths and recovery. Vanessa and I have known each other for quite some time and I've always been really intrigued by her story. As a doctor, she went through her own recovery process and she teaches people how to bring more compassion into their experience. Another similarity that Vanessa and I have is that she has dealt with anxiety. And that is certainly something that I have dealt with in my recovery as well. And it warms my heart that she is so vulnerable and open and courageous to talk about her story so that more first responders, more healthcare professionals can know that it is okay to ask for help. That when you are on the front lines, when you are the go-to, that you need to be taking great care of yourself too. So may you enjoy the beautiful wisdom and expression of Vanessa. Enjoy. Helpers. I'm Vanessa Klugman. I'm a retired physician who stopped practicing medicine five years ago when I came into recovery. I'm now trained as a life coach with a specialty in addictions. I help guide people who are stuck in a battle with challenging emotions such as anxiety, depression, and anger, and seeking a way to peace and balance in their lives. I help them show up in the world from a centered and grounded place. Today, I would like to help you reconnect by showing you how the Four Noble Truths can help you not only navigate life's challenges, but actually flourish and live a life of meaning and purpose. Beverly has provided me with some questions to answer, all in support of you taking good care of yourself while you do great work in the world. Thank you for being here. And if you're ready, let's begin. So the first question is, what are the Four Noble Truths? Well, the Four Noble Truths are really the essence of the Buddha's teaching. The Buddha went on a 45-year journey seeking the answer to the question, why do humans suffer? And he described his findings in the Four Noble Truths. So the first Noble Truth says there is suffering in life. And this suffering takes on very many different types and kinds of flavors. It can be experienced as dissatisfaction, dis-ease, discomfort, irritability. Basically, it is anything, any feeling that we have when we're not at ease or at peace. The second noble truth is that there is a reason that we suffer. The reason we suffer is that we argue with the nature of reality. We cling onto things that we want, that we enjoy, that we desire, 
and we don't want those things to end. And then we push away, we avoid, we numb, we distract from things we don't like. I think we all can relate and understand the feeling of what it is like when we don't want a great vacation to end. Or we push away anxious feelings with a glass or two or three of wine or by shopping incessantly on the internet. Life really is a flow. It's a flow of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, and neutral experiences. But we don't accept this natural flow. So our dissatisfaction really boils down to wanting things to be other than they are. I think that, you know, there's reassurance to the second noble truth because it helps us understand that our dis-ease has a cause. It's not just random. And this then leads us to the third noble truth. And the third noble truth is that there is an end to the suffering. It is possible to let go of craving and be free of this reactivity. So any kind of mental agitation when our mind is not at peace is a form of suffering. And the Buddha, in the Buddhist's um, liturgy, they talk about the two darts or the darts. And the first dart is the injury, the inescapable physical pain or mental discomfort that can occur, that occurs in life. It is the initial upset. For example, the first dart could be an argument you have with your spouse. And the second darts are those reactions we add to that first dart. The thoughts such as, he doesn't love me, I'm unlovable. And most of our suffering comes from those second darts. Which leads us to the fourth noble truth. There is a way to end suffering. And the way to do this is to put into place the practices of the Eightfold Path. Now, I could speak about the Eightfold Path for at least an hour. So I'm going to summarize briefly here, and you can definitely look into this more in the future if you're interested. But the Eightfold Path are these eight practices or ways of being in the world that lead us away from suffering. And they include the idea of wise mindfulness, so the practice of meditation, which leads to wise concentration, wise speech, wise livelihood, wise ethics, so not stealing or killing or lying, wise understanding. So through the practice of wise mindfulness or concentration, we come to the wise understanding that our happiness does not come from wanting and having, but actually from letting go of wanting things to be other than they are. And we see through the practice of mindfulness and meditation, the truth of impermanence, that life is constantly changing. And we also see the very important understanding that there is no, in a parenthesis, self, that we create ego as a fabrication, a solid structure in our own minds. And we notice that when we practice wise speech, we don't lie. Uh, when we practice, sorry, wise speech, we don't um, speak harshly, divisively, unkindly. This leads to less suffering. 
And when we practice wise action, we don't lie, we don't steal, we suffer less. So through this wise understanding, we then can show, choose more skillful ways of showing up in the world that then leads us to a life of peace and balance. So the second question then is what um, role did the Four Noble Truths play in your recovery? The Four Noble Truths played a really fundamental role in my recovery. My addiction was fueled by a desire to escape uncomfortable emotions and the feeling and avoid feeling pain, physical pain and emotional pain. I numbed, distracted, I pushed away my pain and I kept myself busy with excessive work all in an attempt to avoid feeling anything I didn't like. I viewed pain really as a failure and a sign that I was in some way doing something wrong. And when I came to recovery, I really understood that my work was going to be to find a more skillful way to cope with, to open up to, and to really make space for my pain. The answer to this came to me when I was drawn really to a mindfulness summit. And in the summit, I was exposed to the teachings of some of the wisest mindfulness experts. I was particularly drawn to the work of Tara Brach, a Buddhist psychotherapist. And when I heard her insights about the truth of suffering and the causes, they, it really resonated with me. I had an aha. I understood what she was saying. And I decided it was time that I sat down and practiced a core part of the Eightfold Path, which was mindful meditation. Now, I had come to meditation believing or under the illusion that meditation was a way for me to get calm. And that was not the truth. Meditation actually was incredibly painful. When I sat in meditation, I noticed how busy my mind was. And it was full of uncomfortable thoughts and feelings and judgments. Sitting still was so hard for me because I'd always raced away from the present moment, leaning into the future. But I committed to it and I wanted to see if this really would make the difference that I believed and that I learned it would. So I sat every day. And as I sat, I started to develop important insights. I sat with a very, with a kind of curiosity and a, an attitude of kindness, and I wanted to become an observer of my, my mind. And what I noticed were that I had a lot of different types of thoughts, and I started to label them judgmental, future, past, obsessive. And I started to get to know the nature of my own mind. I then saw the effects that certain thoughts had on my mind and my body. I saw that when I let go of painful thoughts and painful stories, I suffered less. I saw that everything is impermanent, even our pain, that everything passes, that experience is always changing. And as I practiced, I noticed that I was more at peace. I was able to make space for my anxiety. And as I did, my anxiety diminished in intensity. I started to be kind and compassionate to myself when I was struggling. 
and I became calmer, more centered and grounded, less reacted, less reactive, less affected by the storms. I started to see as one of my favorite teachers, so Pema Children so beautifully puts it, my mind is like the sky and everything else is just the weather. Okay, so the third, noble, the third question is how can we use the Four Noble Truths to uplevel your recovery or a healing process? The Four Noble Truths really can be applied to our lives in a very practical way. And then there are some more subtle and more advanced ways we can use them for healing. And I'll, I'll talk about both of these. So the Buddha, when he sat down with his disciples and told them the Four Noble Truths, he said, don't believe everything I've said. You need to go ahead and practice this and see it for yourself, right? The pra and, and, and I noticed this when I started to practice meditation myself. So the practice of meditation, what it does is it helps us develop self-awareness. Whereas when we're in addiction, we're in denial of what is true. When we practice meditation and mindfulness, we see the impact of our thoughts and our emotions on our bodies. We realize how we create our own suffering by resisting the flow of life. And as we go about our lives, we become more skillful at noticing our struggles, right? So we can feel struggle as we go about the day, we can feel struggle as a sense of tightness in our body or tension or something's not right. There's a sense of dis-ease. And we can actually implement in that moment a pause. We can stop. Rather than reacting in our old habitual way, we can check in and ask ourselves, how in this moment am I arguing with reality? What story am I telling myself? How is this leading me towards my values or away from my values? How is this leading me towards peace or away from peace. And we become much more skillful at letting go of those stories that are not serving us live our best lives. Now, in terms of up-leveling our healing, a very powerful practice I use and teach my clients is the RAIN practice. And this comes from and was popularized by Tara Brock. And this practice was really important to my recovery, but it's just really a wonderful practice for healing old stories. Underneath our anxiety, our anger, our depression, our fear, usually lies painful core beliefs. And these negative core beliefs sound like, I'm not enough or I'm not worthy unless I'm constantly accomplishing something, or I'm not worthy unless I'm always giving to others. And really the core belief that we have that is most difficult to shed is that belief that we are in some way deficient or inherently flawed. And Tara Brock calls this the trance of unworthiness. And I just love that, that term. The idea that we are somehow, there is something wrong inherently with me. And what that leads to when we are in that trance, we are disconnected from life's energy and from life itself. 
The reason we hang on to these old core beliefs is in part because of our negativity bias. We have brains, according to one of my other favorite teachers, Rick Hansen, that are like Velcro for the negative and Teflon for the positive. So we have this inherent negativity bias. And these beliefs are beliefs that we really accumulated and developed very early on in life and that are no longer serving us at all. So when we practice RAIN, what we do is this. We first are recognize what is going on. We focus our attention on the thoughts and the feelings and the emotions that are present. So we notice when we do R, we recognize, ah, right now I'm caught in a moment of anger. Anger is present right now. That is the recognized part of R. Then we A, allow this to be present. So we are asking ourselves, can I allow this? Instead of our conditioned response to push our discomfort away, we allow it. We let it be. Even though we don't like it, we are saying yes. We are making space for this experience. And then the eye of rain is we investigate. With a very gentle and curious attention, we start to ask ourselves questions like, where do I experience this in my body? So anger often is felt as like a tightness in the chest or a tension in the shoulders or a pounding in the head. And we check in and, and ask ourselves when we investigate, what am I believing in this moment? Am I believing I'm falling short? Am I believing I'm unlovable? Am I believing I'm not enough? Am I believing I'm all alone? And if the most vulnerable part of us could express what it needs, what does that part need from me? And then the nurture is when you sense what your need is. And often the need is for something like love or safety or acceptance or compassion. When we know what that need is and we've we figured it out. We then call on the most wise part of ourselves to send that need inward. And that could be in the form of a message or a tender embrace. And it is truly such a healing process. And after the rain, we shift from this place of doing to this place of being. So we always have this accessible, this option accessible to us to make this U-turn out of our um, trance of unworthiness into a place of presence. So the fourth question then is how do I bring the Four Noble Truths to my work? Well, I act as a guide to people who are caught and trapped in their suffering and seeking a way to really find peace and balance in their lives. What I do is I provide them these truths and the practices that can fundamentally alter their way of living in the world. 
So when I work with clients, I start by identifying their triggers, those uncomfortable situations, feelings, stories that we are conditionally trying to avoid. And we then work on mindfulness practices that allow us to make space for those uncomfortable sensations and emotions. One of my favorite practices is urge surfing. And this comes from Alan Marlat from Mindfulness-Based Relapse Prevention. And basically, this comes from the understanding that an urge is like a wave, and we're going to surf this urge. We notice that we're having a craving. This could be a desire to eat when we are not hungry, but rather stressed, or drink when we feel anxious. And instead of our usual behavior, which is we react, we either react by pushing away the urge or we numb the urge, we now, when we surf the urge, we mindfully observe the sensations and feelings of the urge until they subside. So an urge is like a wave. It gets more and more intense, and then, I, then it just crashes down and subsides. And as we observe the feelings and sensations, we note, as we observe it, we note tightness in the chest, irritability. We note um, restlessness. Um, we note the thoughts and sensations that are going on, trying to bring ourselves back into the body as much as possible. We are retraining our minds. We are teaching our mind that we are resilient and that we can learn new ways of being with discomfort. And each time we do this, we are forming new neural pathways, new ways of being in the world. Another way I work with my clients is I work with them to see that it is not their circumstances that cause their pain and suffering, but their interpretation of their circumstances. And this comes from an understanding of the second noble truth, that our suffering comes from arguing with our reality. So I do a practice with my clients where they can see that their beliefs about their circumstances are what creates their feelings. We all know that the same circumstance can elicit different thoughts in different people and then different types of feelings. We all have a choice point, right, where we can choose different types of thoughts that result in less suffering and are empowering and help us live the life we want. At this choice point, we can either go down our old conditioned pathways that lead us to suffering or we can put in a pause, which we learn through our meditation practice, and consciously choose our response. The last um, practice I'm going to talk about, and there's so many, and I could go on forever and ever, but I'm not going to, um, is that many clients I see are stuck in patterns of shame and guilt. And this is a more um, subtle practice, but part of the Buddhist practice path is to cultivate compassion, um, generosity, and gratitude. So what I do is I help my clients cultivate self-compassion. Um, and this is a really wonderful antidote to healing feelings of shame. So what I do is I help my clients see how much they harm themselves 
with the, their self-criticism. And I help them work towards ending that internal battle that's going on inside. And this practice, my self-compassion work and practice is based on the work of Kristen Neff, who comes out of Stanford. And I, based on her work and her self-compassion break, I teach my clients this break. And the self-compassion break is, is really composed of three components. The first component is mindfulness, right? So we first become aware that we're struggling. Usually, rather than you know, being caught up in it, we're usually walking around caught up in our suffering and not even aware that we are suffering. We're over-identified with it. And so what this step, this mindful step requires is mindfully stepping back, observing without any judgment that we're caught up in a struggle. And when we're able to see that's our situation with clarity, we're then able to, to open our door to wisdom. The second step after we've observed, okay, I'm suffering right now. I'm struggling in this moment. Is that we, the second step then is self-kindness. We are gentle and understanding with ourselves rather than beating ourselves up and being judgmental and critical. And so self-kindness involves that we comfort ourselves as we would our best friend, our pet, anyone that we love in distress. We allow ourselves to be moved by our own pain and suffering. And then self-kindness involves an active gesture so it can involve an active a gesture, like a hand on the heart or a hug, or it can involve kind words, which can be words like, I love and accept myself. I'm here for myself. I'm not alone. You're not alone, my darling. Or even a kind action like taking care of oneself, like taking a bubble bath, going for a walk, doing something loving and kind for oneself. And the third step then is common humanity. The idea that we are not alone in our struggle, that suffering, and this comes from the first noble truth, right? Suffering is a part of life. We all suffer. We all struggle. And as we repeat the self-compassion break, we come to accept that life is hard and that we are all imperfect. And our happiness is not contingent on our circumstances but on our learning to love ourselves and our lives just as they are. And that understanding brings tremendous ease and peace. So the last question, and, and I'm sad to be ending this, is that the resources that one can use to learn more about the Buddhist path. Um, I, would, I uh, have relied a lot on the teachings of Tara Brach, and she's rich, she has a beautiful podcast, but also has written some incredibly wise books. Um, the book Radical Acceptance, Radical Self-Compassion and True Refuge. I also use um, the work of Rick Hansen. Um, he has a wonderful, he has a great um, year-long course called Foundations of Well-Being um, that I have taken. And he's written many books, um, including Buddha's Brain. And then lastly, Kristen Neff um, has a book called Mindful Self-Compassion, The Proven Power of Being Kind to Ourselves. And she has a great website called selfcompassion.org. 
And I just want to leave today by um, stating if you, if you would like to get a hold of me, you can find me on my website, resiliencerecoverycoaching.com, or you can join my Facebook page where I share free resources, res Resilience Recovery Coaching. I'm also on, you can connect with me on LinkedIn. I offer one-on-one -on -one coaching workshops and talks. And I look forward to um, being here for any of you in whatever way would serve you best. Thanks so much and have a wonderful, wonderful day.